At photographycourse.net, you'll be able to swap your expertise with other photographers, make light instead of wishing for it, expand your portfolio, and receive feedback from professionals, all of which will develop your artistic eye. Photographycourse.net offers an abundance of premium courses and challenges for participants at every stage of their journey, from technical settings for portrait photography, to landscape composition tricks, to how to start your own photography business, we have everything you need to start shooting confidently. You can work at a pace that suits you. Our 52-week project challenge will provide you with the educational resources, encouragement, and support that you need to take great photographs every week. You can join us at any time as our themes are evergreen. You can also start by shooting every day and learning something new with our 365 Days of Photography course. Led by an industry expert who has mentored over 10,000 students, this course will help you take your photography skills to the next level with daily, bite-sized videos. Throughout the process of learning, you'll have access to a community that will provide you with inspiration and motivation. Get encouragement from other photographers every single day. Our current limited time offer comes with a special discount code exclusive to the listeners of this podcast. Get 50% off your first year as a premium member. Claim this discount by going to photographycourse.net and entering the coupon code PODCAST. Come join photographycourse.net and capture more than just a moment. Hello everyone, my name is Taya and I'm the host of Great Big Photography World Podcast, where we interview notable photographers in the industry, give advice on a wide variety of topics, and provide tips for beginners and professionals alike. In this episode, I speak with photojournalist, rugby player, and National Geographic explorer, Laurel Chor. Laurel is many different things. She wears many different hats and has an incredibly impressive story and portfolio. We talk about her work with National Geographic, what she's studying in the UK at the moment, and much more. Please enjoy. We have an amazing community at photographycourse.net where you can meet new people, receive constructive criticism, join photography contests, and much more. In our community, you'll also find a 52-week project that will provide you with weekly educational videos and challenges to help you improve your skills on a regular basis. This is an amazing opportunity for you to not only enhance your skills, but also grow your network and have a wholesome experience as a photographer. We're so inspired by the amazing photographs that our members post every day. When you join our community, you'll be able to make new friends and share your progress with a passionate group of people. None of this would be possible without our members' support, so we're very grateful. In order to keep things running, we're offering exclusive membership plans that will give you access to every part of our community and our premium courses. Use the discount code GREATBIGPHOTOGRAPHYWORLD to get 50% off your first year as a member. Go to photographycourse.net slash join and use the code GREATBIGPHOTOGRAPHYWORLD without any spaces to claim your discount. Hi, Laurel. Welcome to Great Big Photography World podcast. I'm so happy to have you here. Please introduce yourself to the listeners. Thank you, Taya, for having me. My name is Laurel Chor, and I'm a photographer, journalist, and filmmaker from Hong Kong. Very exciting. I came up with a lot of questions for you. I'm going to basically interrogate you, so to speak. You have such an amazing portfolio, and I love that you are so into different things, and everything that you're interested in helps you in a way. It's like a whole cycle of interests, and they all help each other in one, in one way or another. 
But let's start with the technical side of things first. I'm sure a lot of the listeners are interested in your camera gear. So what camera gear do you use? So I have been a lifelong Nikon shooter. I, for the last few years, mostly on the Nikon D5 and the D6, which are really heavy, sometimes the D850, but I think both my D850 and the D5 have died. And when I shoot video, when I was a producer at Vice, we would shoot on the Canon C300. And now I'm filming a documentary with some colleagues. And for that, we're shooting on Sony. Um, Sony, the FX, FX6 and FX3. Uh, so a bit of everything. And because of that, I finally got my first mirrorless. I got the Sony Alpha 1 which I'm still getting used to. So I have to say it is a lot nicer to be carrying a lighter camera, but I'm still, I'm a very reluctant switcher to, to mirrorless. And, and the only reason why I went for the Sony instead of the Nikon mirrorless was because the Nikon wasn't available. And also because we were shooting the documentary in Sony, it just kind of made sense. So as I'm a Nikon shooter transitioning to Sony mirrorless right now. Changes of any kind are difficult, I think. Even if it's a minor change, you have to adjust. Your brain has to get used to all the new buttons. And with mirrorless, it's a very big change, right, from digital to mirrorless. Totally. Now I'm like, am I, do I actually know how to take photos? Because <laughs> it is such a challenge and, like, everything looks different. The colors are different. I'm, it, and I think, you know, after shooting Nikon for 10 plus years, it's sort of an extension of yourself and you don't really have to think about it. But now there's all these things that, I don't know how to do on the Sony. So it's a learning process and trying to force myself to be adaptable and not already be some old photographer who can't change and learn a new system. So we'll see how that goes. I think that could be quite a humbling experience because you realize, oh, I've been shooting for so many years and I thought I knew how to shoot, as you said. Now I'm sort of a beginner. How's that affected the way you take photographs in any way? Yeah, it is definitely humbling. I think... And also, especially because I I don't tend to do much to my photos. And I think I, you know, was so used to Nikon photos. And I think Nikon raw is just, you know, it's a lot more vibrant and requires a lot less processing than Sony raw, which kind of inherently requires a lot more processing. So it's definitely an adjustment. But I also sort of see how much potential and power these newer mirrorless systems have and how I could be totally missing out if I, you know, don't at least try to use them. So it's humbling for sure and a little unsettling because it sort of makes you question your practice, but at the same time also exciting in terms of all the new capabilities and also just like not carrying so much heavy gear around. I think I almost have this psychological thing where I feel like I need to carry a lot of heavy things like a security it's like a safety blanket so I think just getting rid of a bit of weight will be a big weight off my shoulders both physically and psychologically that's true security blanket that makes a lot of sense as well for me because my cameras I still use DSLRs as well and they're heavy and I don't know it just gives me so much comfort and it makes me feel very validated because I'm like yeah I'm a photographer it's a big camera right here and a big lens <laughs> exactly yeah <laughs> and especially you know as like women photographers right like we already face so much judgment and like snap judgments based on our appearance or, or whatever we're carrying or just like always having to prove ourselves. So like no one's going to question you with a Nikon D6 and a D5 of your shoulder. Right. So, but um, yeah, we'll see. 
screw those people anyway, right? <laughs> right, yeah. No, I'm really happy that you're going through that change, even if it's a little bit unsettling now. I'm sure that it's going to provide you with more inspiration in the future and hopefully make you feel even more liberated as, as an artist. Yeah, I hope so. In your interview with Nicole Bannister, you talked about your passion for photojournalism and how your pursuit of it led to the discovery of other interests like writing and filmmaking. In your opinion, what kind of skills must every photojournalist have? Mm. Well, I think first and foremost, they have to be good reporters, good journalists. I think that is something that varies so much from individual to individual and the way they work and, and the settings in which they work, whether they're a staff photojournalist or, or a freelancer. I think just being a good reporter is so important in terms of being able to find stories, to tell stories ethically and accurately, to to you know write even appropriate captions. Everyone, every single photojournalist needs to do that. So I think being a good reporter, which also includes like relating to people, interviewing people, navigating the world and situations and contexts that might be different from what you're used to. I do think photojournalists should be good writers. And again, depends so much on the context in which you work. But seeing how it is a shrinking space, the more skills you have, the better. I think being a good writer, being able to convey the story that you're trying to tell is important. I think that really is is the the main thing, really, being a good journalist, you know, who can who can write and tell stories and and has that sort of journalist mind because there are a lot of photographers out there and there's a lot of photographers who like to think of themselves as photojournalists, but I think the journalist part is often neglected. That's very true. Yeah, I was talking to your friend Joshua Paul a few weeks ago and he said that he's a journalist first. Well, first of all, he's a human first and then he's a journalist and then everything else comes after that. And it made so much sense to me because as a non-photojournalist, as a non-journalist, I've never thought about it from that perspective. It makes so much sense because if you look at the world from a journalist's perspective, then everything else will come together, whether it's filmmaking or writing or taking photographs. So it makes a lot of sense. Yeah, it's funny that Josh said that because actually it's one of the guiding principles that I have for myself in my work that a friend told me, which is human first, journalist second. And yeah, I, th I mean, everyone's so different in in their practice. And I think that's part of the beauty of the field. But there's a lot of people out there who are just hell-bent on getting the, the best picture, the most artistic picture, the most beautiful picture, which I think is important and definitely has its place. But if you are working in a context as a photojournalist, I think it's essential to have those other parts in mind, you know, the ethics, the story, you know, it's not always just about the picture, you know, it's, it's, it's really first and foremost about the story. And you know, I'm not saying everyone should do it a certain way, but I think there's a lot of things that photojournalists should definitely keep in mind that come with having that journalist hat on and, and remembering what story you're telling, who you're telling it for, why you're telling this, your role as a journalist, the obligation you have to your to the people that you're photographing, to the story, to the place. These are all considerations that journalists must have that a simple, you know, pure photographer might not. Yeah, there's a lot to juggle. I think you need to have a talent for it and also patience and obviously empathy, which is super important in this industry if you want to just be authentic, <laughs> authentic to yourself. Yeah, so sure. I, 
It's very interesting to hear that perspective. In the same interview with Nicole Bannister, you said that in journalism, you can cover a whole lot of topics and you're constantly learning. What is the most recent thing you learned while working that amazed you? Ooh, that's a good question. The last story that I posted about was about a drag show in Kyiv in that happened in February. And I only just sort of got around to posting it recently because I've sort of taken a step away from social media, as I think we all need to once in a while. And I think it it made me think a lot about society and country and patriotism and, and identity and you know, the the main person I was following for the story who I had first interviewed at the beginning of the war, he had actually quit his job to join the military administration. And, you know, last year he was building coffins by hand to deliver himself to Bucha as part of his job where the where the mass graves were found, of course. And he was also a drag queen on the side and only started performing again a few months ago. And, you know, I, I thought it was such an incredible window for me, you know, as a straight cisgender woman who, you know, I've been to many drag shows, but I hadn't really, you know, of course going to one in in the middle of a war in Kiev is a totally different perspective. And it was so interesting to me to get a glimpse of, of these people's lives that so many people might not understand, even within their own country. And then afterwards, actually, when I posted this on Instagram and all the negative comments I got, it really drove home how brave they are and how how much they're up against. And it kind of made me also think about, you know, what is my responsibility towards these people? You know, obviously they chose to to do the story, they knew exactly what they were getting into. But at the same time, I, I think I almost didn't quite grasp just how brave they are and how much they're up against when I got a tiny sliver of the vitriol or hate that they must face just by posting this story. So I think, you know, that was really humbling just in terms of thinking about what really matters to people in the middle of a war, what it means to to live and in the middle of a war, what we, what is considered proper or improper by others. So, you know, it's a bit of a more abstract lesson, but I think that's part of the beauty of, of journalism is, you know, through storytelling and through empathy, you get to get a glimpse of different ways of, of being and seeing the world. And that was definitely a, a lesson for me. That's a very interesting story. And I think made me think of reading books, whether it's fictional or a memoir or something, you're basically in the author's mind to a certain degree, and you live life through them in a way, indirectly. But as a photojournalist, takes it to the next level where you're actually with those people and you're experiencing their life or a bit of their life through them by photographing them and writing about them. I think that's an amazing gift that you have. And yeah, you said that the backlash that you received wasn't as big as the backlash that your subject received, of course. But you also mentioned that you sometimes take breaks from social media. As a photojournalist, what advice would you give to people who are dealing with social media overwhelm and maybe negativity? Like how can they handle that while also maintaining an online presence? Yeah, that's a really tough one, right? Because I think we can all 
agree that social media can be very toxic. Maybe not inherently, but just, you know, it just becomes toxic for all of us at one point or another. And it's really hard when you're a freelance photojournalist because you or a freelance journalist, because a lot of time you are reliant on these platforms. What happened to Twitter was actually kind of a big wake up call. I'm not super active on Twitter, but I do have like, I don't know, 40 something thousand followers on there, actually more than I do on Instagram. So it is while I don't use it much, you know, at certain times it's super useful. I don't post much, but I use it much. And, and when I am reporting, I do rely heavily on it, whether to gather information or to report. And it was always an important avenue for me to, to you know, have credibility and to just be able to get my work out there and to report without necessarily having an assignment or a commission. And then when Elon Musk bought Twitter and Twitter sort of went downhill to say the least it, it was a big wake-up call in terms of how fragile these platforms actually are and how you know reliance on any single institution or platform has a lot of downsides and how much power individuals can have over something that previously we might have taken for granted as being accessible and democratic i mean i don't really have a solution for that but you know i think Instagram is still a really powerful tool. And I think I'm just trying to use it more intentionally. You know, I recently actually made myself a Finsta because I realized like my Instagram has sort of become work Instagram. And it wasn't somewhere where I could be totally authentically myself in a way, you know, in the sense that I didn't feel comfortable posting pictures of my family on there or, you know, just like small things from my daily life that I didn't feel safe anymore in a way on my own platform. So I created a separate account where I can post selfies and dumb things at my own leisure. And so I think having that bit of separation between myself and social media, but also, you know, acknowledging that it is necessary that like, for example, that post about the drag show, you know, had been published back in March. Didn't hear a peep about it, but it was only when I posted on Instagram a few months later that it got attention, at least from my network. So it's not something you can renounce, really. And still, Instagram for me is definitely the best way anyone can keep up with my work. It's really the only place that I keep somewhat updated. But you have to have that separation. You can't let yourself pin your worth on it. You can't take all the comments, to, you know, you can't take the comments personally. You you can't take even likes personally. I think you just have to see it as a tool, as a professional tool, and sort of leave it at that. But, you know, that said, it's so much easier said than done. I actually installed this app, which has been usually helpful in breaking my Instagram habit. It's called One Sec. I am not sponsored by them. This is a purely personal recommendation. It's an app. So every time I open Instagram or Twitter, I have them set for those two apps. It makes me either like take a deep breath or like do this little like game where I have to follow a circle with my finger for a while before I can open it. So just breaking that habit of opening Instagram literally mindlessly has been a huge help and has, you know, forced me to be more intentional, you know, of only opening Instagram 
when it's worth it for me to like even take those few seconds to open it. So it's a constant struggle. There's no really, there's no easy solution, especially as a visual storyteller, right? Like that's how I keep track of other people's work too. That's how I consume images made by other people, which is so important, but it's, it's, it's hard. I don't, I don't know if anyone's figured it out, please let me know. Yeah, please let me know as well. <laughs> I think that's such a smart app because I have used app blockers in the past, things like that, but they have never helped because whenever I try to access a certain app, like Instagram, for example, I do it habitually, automatically, and the app blocks me and I get mad and then I uninstall the app. But an app like the one that you just recommended, it gives you a little game or it makes you take a deep breath. I think that's much more holistic. <laughs> than yeah. Just- For sure. I think it's really just about making it from mindless to mindful. I think that's probably a philosophy that I try to have in general. Certainly not one that I stick to very well, but just, I mean, when I installed that app, I realized just how often I'm on Instagram before I even realize it. Like literally you're standing in line, you're, I don't know, on the toilet or whatever. And you just, you're on Instagram before you even realize what you've done. And that has just broken that cycle. So highly recommend it. That's great. As a professional photographer, especially, you need to have an online presence. You can't just delete all the apps, even if you're tempted to sometimes. Um, But at the same time, you want to make sure that you don't get consumed by it so much. And the algorithm makes it so that it's so addicting. So it's not something that a single human can just control. So having that extra step, that extra obstacle can really help you maintain that. And it's nice that you have a Finsta as well. I think that can also help you sort of separate yourself from that online identity. Yeah. Yeah. And even then I've sort of struggled with that because then I'm like, now I have a choice. I'm like, which do I post this on? And if if I post it on my main account, then it's like inherently a, a decision to be performative. Right. But then I guess all social media is a decision to be performative. And and I think also when you're an independent or freelance journalist, uh, nowadays you're kind of inherently part of what you're you know you have a brand now right you know part of the reason why people follow you is because it's you it's not just this disembodied series of work especially me when my work is kind of all over the place right so yeah it's a tough balance I have no idea (laughs) how to figure that out but I'm trying Yeah, I'm sure a lot of the listeners can relate. Every single person that I speak with has some sort of issue with social media. So it's a universal problem amongst people who use social media. So I think that's kind of comforting. Not that you want other people to struggle like you do, (laughs) but it's just nice to know that it's not just you who's being affected by it. It's everybody. It's just the algorithm. It's just how it's made. So in a sense, yes, when you know that, it might be more comforting. I don't know. (laughs) Yeah. It's more comforting for me. Human nature, right? And the things that appeal to the worst of it. Exactly. You're currently doing your master's in biodiversity and conservation. After completing your studies, is there a specific topic you'd like to work on? Yeah. Well, completing my studies is a bit of a sore topic since (laughs) it's taking a bit longer than anticipated. I took last year off uh, because I was working so much and, you know, honestly, because my mental he- health was not great and I was figuring that out. I had been recently diagnosed with ADHD and uh, had to figure out my whole medical regimen for that. But now I'm sorted. 
And back to finishing my master's. Uh, it's tough to balance work and master's for sure. What I want to do with afterwards, I mean, honestly, you know, I've been filming this documentary in Ukraine with colleagues for over a year now. So we'll be continuing filming that for as long as we need to, probably at least till the end of the war. I think we're all quite committed to the issue and, and want to see it through and tell it properly. But down the line, I would love to do more environmental stories. There, you know, one story I'm working on on the side in Ukraine is actually national parks and how they're dealing with the war. I have, I got a grant from National Geographic to do a project about manta rays. That's been a bit delayed because of all of the above reasons. But with manta rays, it's sort of a more abstract project, but I'm interested in how people relate to manta rays and how manta rays relate to people and how that affects both manta rays and, and people. And, and, you know, the, the underlying theme of that is really just how society and people relate to nature and, and what that implies for everyone on this planet. I would love to go back to the Central African Republic where I'd spent some time about a, more than a decade ago now. You know, I think that region of the world is generally so underreported and doesn't get much attention at all. So I, in general, I would love to do more environmental issues, especially looking at environmental issues through a more social or human lens, um, trying to make them more relatable. But I think based on my track record and my personality, which a lot of it I understand is now ADHD, I just have a lot of varied interests and I will continue doing a bit of everything, I think. I think that's a superpower, having a lot of varied interests, right? Because, I mean, it's nice to have just a few interests, but if you have many, then in your industry, that helps you a ton, as we talked about earlier. And I think it's also interesting in photojournalism, when you think about people and wars, things like that, those are often covered in the news, not so much environmental topics, or at least that's not what I see on my news feed that much. So it's interesting for you to be pursuing that, something that I think you're genuinely passionate about, and it will be very interesting to see how you cover manta rays and their relationship to humans. It's uh, I'm very curious about that, actually. How much research do you need to put into that? And what do you need to do to understand those relations? Yeah, it's a good question. Well, I'm, I'm actually doing my master's dissertation on that. So it's you know helpful for me to sort of think of my master's as laying the groundwork for this project further down the line. But it's it's a lot of reading, actually, and, and that's why I've been really grateful for this master's, because it's just forced me to read so much and, and learn so much. You know, I, I, of course, knew I was going to learn things doing this master's, but I had not anticipated that it would change the way that I saw the world and understood the world and just learning so much about different ways of interpreting the world, different ways of analyzing the world. You know, it's a lot more, a lot of philosophical approaches or theoretical approaches about understanding the world and how we relate to nature and how we view nature and animals. And I think all of that will sort of inform my journalism and storytelling going on because, you know, I think we're all so, all of us, we're all so often stuck in our ways of seeing the world or we we take it for granted how we see the world or we we think our way of seeing the world is is the only way the right way and i think this has really helped to challenge that for me 
That's very interesting. Do you think that photographers would be able, I don't want to speak for everyone, but say somebody decides to, t to read more about non-photography related topics and tries to understand the world better? Do you think that will improve the way they take photographs? Absolutely. I think learning and consuming more information and challenging ourselves mentally can only be a boon for ourselves as as photographers. I mean, obviously, you know, on one hand, you do just need to be in the field and practicing and work on our technical skills and just looking at other images. But even just thinking about what are the stories we're trying to tell? What are what are the different ways of seeing the world? Because I think photography at the end of the day is really a way of seeing the world, right? It's it's us showing other people how we view the world or or what we think is important to see. So I think the more you expand that, the more you might be able to contribute something unique and you might be able to have a better understanding of what you're trying to say and therefore a clearer voice, which I think is always the elusive thing that photographers are told to have. You know, to this day, I'm still not entirely sure what that means <laughs> or or how to have a voice. But it is important because, I mean, especially now, right, anyone can take a photo and everyone sort of has an idea of what anything looks like now. But how can we show a different way of seeing the world? And I think the more intentional you can be about it, the more you can expand your worldview, the higher the likelihood of you contributing something unique and worthwhile. Yeah, that's a great point to make. And I think it's a great opportunity to take a break from photography if that break is needed. But then you'll know that whatever you read in the book will somehow help you as a photographer when you go back to photography. Whatever it is that you do in your life that is not related to photography can also contribute to photography in the long term, I think. At least that's been my experience with it, which is amazing to me because it means I don't need to practice all the time if I'm burnt out, I just don't feel like taking photographs, if I just want to read a fictional book, or if I just want to watch a movie that is not related to cameras or anything like that, it still helps me somehow. I still get an inkling of inspiration in some way. I definitely do this, but I think one thing I'm trying to unlearn is this idea of always needing to be productive. I mean, it's, I am the single worst perpetrator of that. I always think I need to be productive at all times and I feel guilty and useless if I if I'm not. But I think and that's super hard to unlearn, right? That's social, that's cultural. But I think, yeah, just allowing yourself to do things because you enjoy them or because it's just a challenge without having to relate it to how it makes you a better better at making or creating. I think that's really important too, just giving yourself the space to play or even do nothing or just exist and enjoy. I think that's all really important. And whatever makes you a better functioning human, I think will make you a better everything else. If you know, if you do want to relate it back to how it makes you a better photographer. Yeah, that's very true. And I think I don't want to put the whole blame on social media, but because of its existence, we often feel like our productivity or any activity that we invest time into should be documented, also in a visually aesthetic way. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so that has been a very big issue for me. I'm not a professional photographer, so I have the privilege of deleting my social apps if I want to, which is something I did recently. 
But I still struggle with that feeling of, oh no, I need to document it somehow. So I needed to stop that <laughs> for myself. And now I'm left with the feeling of, oh, who am I going to share my productive tasks with? So now I'm reassessing my hobbies. I'm like, am I genuinely interested in this? Or do I do it for the sake of impressing someone out there? Yeah, that's that's a tough one, right? And I think there's so much rolled up in that, you know, it's anxiety, it's FOMO, it's, you know, this this need to constantly produce. And, you know, if I do something, it's on Instagram, did it really happen? You know, so it's 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 a tough one, I think. And especially as journalists or photographers or storytellers or creators of any kind, you are always creating for an audience, right? I mean, you don't have to be, but I think that's a big reason why most of us do anything is, is or, you know, if we did something and, and no one ever saw it, you might question what the point is. So I think it's, it's hard finding that balance between creating for creating sake and or creating for other people's sake or creating for your own sake. And and that's something I for sure struggle with. And I for sure, you know, as a lifelong overachiever, I have definitely chased external validation always. I mean, I'm doing a master's at Oxford, so I can't deny that. But yeah, it's and I think it's always a balance, right? I think you can do those things, but as long as you keep a part of it, part of yourself for yourself, you know, don't fully buy into everything that society tells you or the institutions tell you. I think, you know, if you have a healthy amount of skepticism or criticalness, then, you know, maybe that's enough too. We all have to buy into society to some extent, right? That's kind of part of being human, but more things that I really don't have an answer to. Well, I agree with you completely. And it's a very interesting and important conversation to have and to listen to. And I think that's the power of having deeper conversations with photographers instead of just viewing their work online. Because before I interviewed you, before I did research on you, I looked at your Instagram page first. It was one of the first um, things I looked at that were related to you. And honestly, I'm very honest, I felt very intimidated because I was like, she speaks multiple languages. She's so smart. She does this, this, and this. She's probably the super you know, productive person who's doing something every day. And then I started to compare myself. And that's the cycle of social media. And then when I started doing my research, I actually saw you as the human person, the human being that you are. And I saw different sides of you. And that's our human experience, being able to see different sides of one another. And it gave me a deeper understanding of you. And it really humbled me as well. (laughs) But it's so easy to come to conclusions on social media and so easy to feel inferior as a result if if you struggle with insecurity. Absolutely. Yeah, totally. And I think you know, especially as women, right, where like our whole lives, society sort of trained us to compare ourselves and to think less of ourselves. And, and, you know, when you're in a really competitive cutthroat industry, like photojournalism, or even journalism in general, especially as a freelancer, where a lot of your brand is tied up with who you are as a person or who you present as, you know, it's, it can be really overwhelming. And I think, even though on one hand, I'm I'm glad I made a Finsta, which I don't actually even use that much. But like, on the other hand, I I also am reluctant to hide parts of myself because I want people to see me as a human. And and I don't want to pretend that I'm some sort of two-dimensional character who's unrelatable or anything. You know, I think it's a tough 
balance. On one hand, you want to protect yourself and your loved ones, especially when, you know, as a woman and as a woman of color online, you are susceptible to, I think, more trolling than others. But on the other hand, I, I don't want to be less authentic out of fear. And, and I want to encourage people to be more authentic and, and realize that journalism is also inherently flawed because it's inherently made by inherently flawed human beings too. So yeah, it's a tough balance like everything else. But I think, yeah, it's a very unique and modern problem, right? As a freelance journalist, when it's very difficult to put your work out there without putting a part of yourself. But also I think, you know, as journalists, I I, I think, like I said, I think it's good to acknowledge that you know, while of course we're trying our best to be objective and not biased, I think to pretend that it's possible to do that 100% as a human being or even as institutions is misleading too, right? So I think there's something to be said about being transparent about who we are. Yeah, no, definitely. And I think you wanting to be better as a photographer, also being very conscious of what you put out there online means that you really care. And I think that's the most important part. You care, you want to improve and you're constantly improving not just your work, but the way that you present yourself online and you want to help others. I think that's definitely the most important part. And speaking of overachieving, I'm also a fellow overachiever. I'm sure the listeners can relate. I was um, the, the top student in school every year. I'm sure that you can also relate to this. So for me, I grew up with this label that I constantly gave to myself and the others gave to me the best, you know, the best at the, every class, the best at this and that. When you go out into the real world and you realize, oh, no, I'm actually not the best at this. I didn't get this many likes compared to this photographer or this project maybe failed compared to somebody else's project. And you start to feel inferior. <laughs> That's my insecurity coming out here. But there was a video I watched related to this recently that really helped me. And the I can't remember her name, unfortunately, but I'll make sure to link to it in the show notes. She said that failure, essentially, if you don't know how to fail in life, then you're just not going to go anywhere, basically. You have to, as overachievers, oftentimes we don't know how to fail. You have to know it's an actual skill, knowing how to deal with it, knowing how to deal with the consequences, how to get up. But I think as photographers and as journalists, maybe that's an important skill to have as well. Being okay with not knowing everything in this moment, being okay with um, failing from time to time as well. Yeah, yeah. You know, I had a conversation with, friend who's also a journalist covering Ukraine and he said something and he's like well yeah like all journalists are just really insecure and I was like damn that is true <laughs> I don't know why but it is true isn't it and I mean I think anyone who who is in a line of work where you're making something and putting it out there is it's such a vulnerable process that it comes with a lot of insecurity and maybe, you know, because there's probably a healthy amount of ego involved as well, that that also comes with insecurity. I know for me, you know, one thing that I really struggle with and, you know, everything you said, I definitely related to, but this idea that, you know, this is what I'm working on in therapy right now, basically, you know, this, this core belief that I have that I'm not good enough, that I always need to be proving myself that, and that, you know, rejection is like, a rejection of who I am as a person and all of my worth. So it's a tough one, you know, and also part of me is scared that if I do start believing that I am good enough, then I won't want to 
do anything and achieve anything and make anything. But that I'm starting to work on in that I'm, I am starting to believe that actually it would only make me better. You know, the more I'm able to believe that I'm good enough and to love myself and, and to just embrace who I am, the more that will come out in my work and and the more I'll be making for myself rather than others. And hopefully that would be more authentic and more valuable than just trying to achieve by external standards and, and measurements. So it's a tough one. <laughs> and I think it's hard, right? Because it's also a very vulnerable thing to talk about. And I think not many people do talk about that insecurities and, and jealousy and, and comparison, especially, like you said, in a world now where it's so easily quantified, <laughs> social media. So it's a tough one. I think we all have to try to do our best to heal ourselves and get to a point where we do love ourselves and we do think we're good enough. And I think the world would look like a really different place if we did all get to that point if, and if societies did sort of help to foster that instead of a rat race where we're all competing for limited pies. I don't even know what the question was anymore. <laughs> That's good. This might be like a therapy session and indirect yeah. for some of the listeners. For me, definitely yeah. it is. Yeah. <laughs> it's yeah. nice. Yeah, for sure. And, you know, like, that's part of the reason why I do try to talk about these things, because stigma about mental health and, and just being about being vulnerable in general is really harmful. And it's something that I know had harmed me. You know, I, I grew up in Hong Kong where mental health wasn't really talked about, is still quite stigmatized. And, you know, it took me so long to get help for my struggles. And now that I am, I'm like, wow, like this was so simple for me to do. I mean, obviously easier said than done and not everyone has access to services. And I'm really lucky that I, that I do have access, but even just talking about it and, and being open about it, you know, I've been open that I'm on antidepressants and now I'm on ADHD meds and I'm, I am in therapy every week. And, you know, I'm probably the best I've ever been because of that. And I hope other people realize that, you know, if even me, this like apparent overachiever has struggled and is willing to talk about it, then hopefully other people realize that, like you said, we're all human with the same struggles. Yeah, it's a vulnerable topic, but it's very liberating, I think, to talk about it sometimes, especially in a safe space. And when somebody who's struggling with something similar listens to it, they can feel very validated. Photographycourse.net is a place where you can find an abundance of photography inspiration in different forms like premium courses, articles, video tutorials, editing resources, and much more. We have a thriving community where you can meet new people, receive constructive criticism, and discover new ideas every single day. Here is a message from one of our top community members, Robert Morton. Hi, my name is Rob. I specialise in wildlife photography and landscape photography. I'm a member of PhotographyCourse.net online community. I like the community because you get some fantastic ideas and some great feedback. So take your photography to the next level by clicking the link in the description. That's what I did and I haven't looked back. 
If you want to join our online community, go to photographycourse.net and enter the coupon code PODCAST to get 50% off your first year as a premium member. Yeah, as we mentioned earlier, social media is very performative and it has to be. It's just its nature. For me, I've been struggling a lot with that. I, As I said, I deleted my social apps and I just don't want to even post on photography websites anymore. Just at some point, I started thinking about the why behind my photography. And it's just one of those things that falls under the category of performative, mainly. When I take photos, I think, what will people think? And in journalism, in photojournalism, obviously, you have to think about how people perceive a certain photograph. And yeah, it's just a balance you need to be conscious of. For me, I'm just taking that break and hopefully I'm going to improve my work and improve my relationship with my work and understand the why behind my images. And I know that a lot of people struggle with that as well. And it's just a matter of being authentic to yourself. And that takes a lot of time and healing sometimes. Yeah, well, I'm glad you have that, even that self-awareness to take a break and, and understand how it's affecting you and, and what you need to do in order to be able to get back on it without it being toxic. Yeah, hopefully it'll work out. Yeah, it's a, <laughs> well, it's a journey. <laughs> it's a journey, yeah, it's a constant journey. Our online photography community is a place where you can grow your skills and learn something new every single day. If you want to join conversations like this one and connect with like-minded photographers from across the world, you're in the perfect place. We have a special discount code for our podcast listeners. We're offering 50% off your first year as an extraordinary or limitless member. Go to photographycourse.net slash join to claim your discount with the code greatbigphotographyworld. You, in addition to being a reader, an avid reader, a photographer, a storyteller, you're also a public speaker. I watched a few of your public speaking videos and I was very impressed. You're very calm and collected. How has public speaking helped you as a photographer? Yeah, good question. Um, I'm actually going to Hong Kong in a couple of weeks to help lead a workshop about public speaking for National Geographic, which is a first. I think, I mean, I'm not, you know, the, you know, there's like people who like say they love public speaking. I'm not one of those people. I, I don't love it for this, for the sake of, you know, speaking on stage, but I've definitely come to realize how powerful it is. And I think, you know, like any storyteller or any, in any form of storytelling, really, you, you come to understand the power of any medium. And for me, public speaking, I think the practice of it is really helpful to anyone just crafting a story or narrative about your work or something you care about or even yourself. I think that is a really powerful process in itself, being able to make that narrative and deliver it in, you know, in a way that is interesting and attention grabbing and succinct. That process in itself, I think everyone should go through. I think it's really powerful in that being able to tell a story about yourself helps you figure out who you are and why you do what you do and what it is that you do and why it's important and what it is that you're trying to achieve. But also, I think it's also really good exercise in remembering that it's not about you as any storyteller. You know, it's while it's a very vulnerable and scary thing to go on stage and, and to talk to someone, ultimately you're there to tell a specific story, to convince the audience of something or, or to tell them about what you're working on. And to be able to get to a point where you're 
over yourself and don't let your own ego get in the way of your own work and your own message. I think that's really important. And it's just a good confidence boost, right? I think most people can use a confidence boost. And if you can tell your story on stage and, and survive that, you know, I think we can, we'd all realize we can, we're a lot more capable of, of a lot of things than we think. Exactly. Yeah. It seems intimidating, but then once you're up there, I think, and you hear yourself speaking, then as you said, it can be a major confidence booster. And even if you stumble a little bit, people will re respond to you in some way. You might make some new connections during that event. So it's empowering in general, I think. And also, even if one of the listeners isn't going to a public speaking event, they're not going to speak anywhere. It might help to just write an essay about yourself, about your work, why you love what you do. That's an idea that came to mind while you were telling me about your experience. Because as you said, if you talk about yourself and your work and the why behind it, then it can help you get a better idea of yourself as a person. It's like a self-therapy session. In a way. So totally. Yeah, I think just being, it's, it's a tool for self-reflection, really. And I think as journalists or creators or really anyone, you know, I think being aware of who you are and what your story is, and we all have a unique contribution to make because we're all unique, right? So I think having a clear idea of that can really help us be have more clarity and, and, and guidance about what we want to achieve with our limited time on this planet. Absolutely. You've mentioned National Geographic a few times during this conversation, and you're a National Geographic explorer, a role that many photographers wish that they had. <laughs> what was your introduction to the company like, and what is your favorite project that you've worked on with them so far? So National Geographic Explorer is basically anyone who's received a grant from National Geographic. I got my first grant, I think it was in 2013, a long time ago. It was a Young Explorer grant, um, which don't even exist anymore. They were grants for up to $5,000 for people between 18 and 25. So you really didn't need to be very qualified at all. And that was my first introduction to National Geographic. It was a grant to do a project about endemic species in Hong Kong, so species not found anywhere else. I totally failed at what I set out to do. I wanted to crowdsource a database about Hong Kong endemic species, did not do that. But instead, I did do a lot of public education. That's probably where I really started speaking in public about what there is in Hong Kong's nature that people aren't paying attention to, why it's important to explore, why it's important to protect it. And over the years, you know, I guess I've basically spent my entire career as a National Geographic Explorer, and I'm really grateful for that and all the opportunities that has given me. But most of all, really, it's the community. I think it can be quite lonely when you're trying to do something that's a little unconventional or not mainstream or not a regular career. And just being able to have connections or a network of people who are similarly doing their own thing, I think is really, really helpful to know that you're not alone. And, and to this day, you know, the people I meet through National Geographic are some of my closest friends. But in terms of projects, I'm, I'm really excited about this Manta Ray project. You know, I, it's been hard for me to, to think about it because I've been busy covering the war in Ukraine and it's so different. But now that I am fully immersed back into my master's where I am writing about manta rays, I'm really excited about this project. The, the title is um, A Visual Geography of Human Manta Ray Relations in the 21st Century. So it's a little out there. So I'm really grateful that Nat Geo is giving me 
the chance to pursue such an abstract and out there project. But I'm I'm really excited to do that. I'm not sure when I'll be able to get to it. It'll probably be next year at the earliest, but I, I'm really excited. Very exciting indeed. And it's great that they that a company like this exists that provides photographers with opportunities to cover topics that maybe aren't very conventional, as you said, and it can give other people a greater understanding of manta rays and nature. Sometimes I watch documentaries about animals that I've never seen before in my life. And just knowing what they go through on a daily basis, knowing their anatomy, like their biology gives me a greater appreciation for them. It's not something that would have been possible had I just ignored them or seen photographs of them. So documentaries like this are definitely very important. And I wish you the very best with that one. And I'm sure that you're very excited about it. Yeah, thanks. Yeah, it helps that, you know, manta rays are found in some of the world's most beautiful places. And I love the ocean. So I'm really excited about that, too. You've worked with a wide variety of news outlets, including The Telegraph, South China Morning Post, The New York Times, and many others. What advice would you give to someone who's starting out in the industry and wants to build a good reputation for themselves? Yeah, I think, you know, the advice I always give to people just starting out is that you don't need permission to tell a story. I think, you know, it's a bit of a catch-22 when you're a freelancer, right? Especially when you're starting out, which is that you need a portfolio in order to get work, but you, you know, you can't get work unless you can't have a portfolio unless you get work. So I, you know, I encourage aspiring journalists or people just starting out to just write a story, photograph a story. You know, a story is a story, whether or not it's published in a big name publication. And ultimately it's the strength of your work and the story that's going to shine through. You know, my first job was, my first journalism job was at a digital media company called Coconuts. And I covered local news and some of the stories I did managed to get international attention just by by virtue of the strength of the story. And, you know, it wasn't about the platform. You know, to this day, no one's really heard about Coconuts Hong Kong. No offense to Coconuts Hong Kong. I loved my time there and I still am a big fan. So I think, you know, it's not about where you get published. It's really about what you're publishing. And once you have a strong portfolio, you know, that's what editors are going to be looking at. And you'll have proven work uh, that that will show that you can do what you're what you're proposing to do. So that's my biggest advice. And also, you know, I I do think it is worth, if possible, to to get a full-time job in journalism because I think a lot of people now are trying to go straight into freelance journalism, which is super tough, you know. I think hard to get a lot of experience quickly as a freelance journalist. Whereas when you're in a in a full-time job, you kind of do have to just churn stuff out and you'll be working hopefully with an editor in a newsroom. You'll learn so much so quickly. You'll build a network, you'll build a portfolio. So, you know, I think that's sort of an underrated route that people tend to ignore is, is just getting a job, like get your foot in the industry. You'll learn so much. And when you feel ready to leave, you can leave but you'll leave with so much experience and, and a solid portfolio under your belt. Yeah, definitely. And it's a great way to grow your network before you become more independent and you get that experience and that confidence, as you said, and that can really help you a lot, make a very big difference, as opposed to you immediately starting out as a freelancer, as an independent photographer. You worked as a full-time journalist uh, at some point, and then you decided to become an independent photojournalist. What was the inspiration behind that? Uh, right before I went freelance, I was working as a producer for Vice 
Vice News. I was a producer for Vice News Tonight, which sadly they've just announced has been canceled. So I was a producer for a TV show, a news show, and I was never someone who was video first, really. You know, video was sort of a side effect or a side byproduct of, of my career in that, you know, I loved journalism and I loved photography and video, you know, being in such high demand just made a lot of sense. There was a lot more opportunity and money in that. And it was a really cool job. So I took it and I was able to do so much. And I made a lot of work that I'm super proud of at Vice. And at one point I sort of realized like, wow, like I was able to accomplish so much in video when I don't really care about it, at least not in the same way that I care about photo. So what's stopping me from trying my hand in the medium that I actually do really care about? And it kind of taught me, you know, how much I can accomplish when I'm not afraid of failure. And so I just knew that I'd regret it if I didn't give photojournalism a proper try. And I'm and I'm glad I did. It was timing as well. I not long after I quit and went freelance. I the protests in Hong Kong broke out, and I really dedicated myself to covering those, and that got me a lot of work. And you know, it was the first time I worked for a lot of these publications, and sort of got my name out there. Obviously, it was a story I also just cared a lot about, and I was really glad I was freelance because I I know if I were still a staffer, then I wouldn't have had the freedom to cover the protests as extensively as I did. You know, I'd have to be covering stories around the region. I couldn't be covering Hong Kong as much as I did as a freelancer who was based in Hong Kong. So it was just, it was good timing and it, and it gave me the opportunity and the time to, to really pursue photojournalism properly. Because um, up until then, I sort of done it it was something I was allowed to do as part of my job, whether it was at Coconuts or Vice, but it wasn't actually my job. So I could actually dedicate myself to to photography and actually, instead of always dreaming about being a photojournalist and being afraid of failure and, and not really giving myself the time or space to, to get even decent at it, I'm really glad I made that leap to, to not give myself a reason to regret further down the line. And if you were a staffer now, would you still be able to study in, in the UK or not? Oh, definitely not. <laughs> definitely not. No. I mean, technically, I'm I'm not really supposed to be working at all doing this master's. It's kind of against their policy. It's also just real life, right? Uh, and I did end up taking time off in order to work. But yeah, no, totally. As a full-timer, I wouldn't have been able to, to do this master's. Though I did play in the Rugby World Cup when I was a full-time staffer, which I'm very grateful I was able to do. But I actually just used my paid time off to do that. So that worked out. <laughs> Speaking of the Rugby World Cup, <laughs> which you competed in at the 2017 Women's Rugby World Cup, first of all, it's absolutely amazing, very impressive. Your skills as an athlete have helped you as a photojournalist in many ways. You mentioned in some interviews that during difficult situations, you have better reflexes than somebody who isn't uh, an athlete. You can dodge certain things and keep yourself safe, essentially. Are there any physical slash fitness tips you'd give to photographers? Yeah, I love fitness. I'm a total jock. And 
I would totally be a personal trainer in another life or a fitness instructor. But I think really just prioritizing taking care of yourself when you're on the road and in general, I think is so important. You know, photojournalism is really physical, right? It's when you're in the field, you're carrying heavy things, you're running around, you're, you have long days and you're also sitting a lot too, whether it's on planes or cars or trains and all that really takes a toll on your body. And if you don't take care of your body, then that's going to limit not just what you're able to do in the field, but also the longevity of your career. Um, for me, it's also a huge part of taking care of my mental health, you know, exercising. So even when I'm on the road, I work out religiously and there's really no excuse. I think obviously sometimes life gets in the way, but there's always something you can do in your hotel room. You can always go for a run. I'm actually injured right now because I managed to overtrain while I was in Ukraine. So you know, there's always a way to maintain your your physical health when you're on the road. And, and that includes sleep and nutrition. And I think it's easy to ignore those things. And I think we all very easily use being in the field as an excuse for poor habits. But if the majority of your life or a good chunk of your life is on the road, that's that's really kind of your, you know, that's your lifestyle. So I think just just keeping fit and that there's always something you can do in your hotel room. Or even just like, I bring really simple light tools with me. Like uh, you can, you know, there's like those sliders you can get that like slide on the floor. You can use your hotel room or like resistance bands or I always bring a little massage ball with me. Um, so there's there's always things you can do to maintain your fitness. Yeah, and then also if you are able to lighten your equipment. As you said, you recently upgraded to mirrorless. I'm sure that helps a lot because me with my heavy lenses, my neck hurts afterwards. Totally. So strengthen my arms. Yeah, yeah. Or, I mean, sometimes it means I'm carrying more stuff because, like, you know, I'm carrying fitness equipment. and Or, like, one thing that is pretty heavy that I will bring with me everywhere is my laptop stand and external keyboard and trackpad because, you know, we spend so much time editing. You might have a beautiful setup at home, but if you're, again, spending most of the time on the road, hunched up over a laptop, it's really going to take its toll. So, like, posture is big for me. I, you know, I have my laptop stand set up right now. Elbows at 90 degrees and your laptop, you know, at eye level when you're sitting straight. So, things like that, I think people tend to neglect. Everyone, really, not just photojournalists. Yeah, I'm going to have to fix my posture now. Everyone's just listening, <laughs> like, let me fix my posture real quick. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it's really just about feeling good, right? I think... You don't want your body to be in the way of what you want to do. Yeah, you mentioned in an interview, I can't remember which one it was, but you said that you are your greatest asset. And when I heard that, I thought, well, that's very true because how you present yourself to the world, all of that, that's not the most important thing. What's important is how you treat yourself, how your body feels. And then you can give your best self to other people, whether professionally or personally. So it's, I think, a very good mindset to have. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. In your interview with Exposure Works, you said that looking at other photographers' images of the same event or conflict helps you improve. I found that very refreshing because you didn't mention anything about competition. It was more about learning from other people. How do you keep yourself humble and grounded in such a competitive environment? It's definitely not hard to be humbled, <laughs> I think. You know, there, there will always be someone who's better than you. And, and in any case, you know, better is subjective. And a lot of time, like who gets assignments and doesn't, or 
are so unrelated to just talent, <laughs> you know, that you really can't take things personally. And I say this as someone who takes everything personally, <laughs> but uh, I think, I think having humility is sort of the secret. I think knowing that you'll never be the best and that you'll always be improving and you'll always need to work to improve and you always need to hustle is, is the key because if you start thinking that you are the best or that you deserve all assignments and people are getting recognition and they don't deserve that you deserve, that's, that's not going to serve you or anyone else. And so I think just somehow cultivating humility, I'm not sure how to do that. I think I'm just inherently a very self-critical person anyway. So <laughs> humility is not something I've ever had issues with, but just, I think, focusing on on trying to become the best person you can be and the best photojournalist and journalist and storyteller that you can be and, and really thinking about improving your craft rather than trying to, you know, climb up in some sort of arbitrary or fake ranking that you've created in your head. And for me, looking at other people's work, you know, just helps me see what is possible and how other people approach the situation. It's it's such a cool opportunity in this day and age where you can see so many other people's work. And, you know, when you're covering something that a lot of other people are covering, like Ukraine, or even if it's like a protest in a big city, like you can see how given the same situation and circumstances, how someone else approached it differently, how their work is different. And I think that's just a really cool opportunity to improve and learn and, and see an event in a world through another photographer's eyes. So it's hard to find a balance between humility and just like self-flagellation. But, you know, I think if we just think of it, if I just think of it as trying to be better rather than how can I be as good as someone else, then that is for me the healthier way to do it. Definitely. Yeah. And just shifting your perspective a little bit can help because for you, you see it as learning from other people and seeing how they uniquely saw the situation the same one that you were in as opposed to oh they are better than me and this and that it's it's not about how bad or good you are compared to someone else as you said it's about what you are all bringing to the table in a sense as journalists and that can be very empowering instead of discouraging yeah <laughs> you openly talk about mental health and that's something we've talked about a lot in this conversation and in the interview I referenced earlier, you said that you try to prioritize your mental health by exercising and taking care of yourself. That's something you mentioned in this conversation as well. What's something a photojournalist should avoid to protect their mental health? Well, you know, I'm not going to tell anyone how to live their life. And everyone's different. And everyone has different needs and reacts differently to things. I know I personally, things that I avoid... I put alcohol. I don't drink. I mean, you know, I'm not like some sort of like my body's a temple kind of person. But I just I think being aware of what serves you and what doesn't serve you. For me, you know, drinking, I realize is, you know, of course, it can be fun. Uh, and it's hard to not partake when everyone else is. But like, it's just such a net negative for me. And I can feel just how in like the days afterwards, I'm just like a little more depressed. So I think just being aware of what makes you feel good and what makes you feel bad is really just as simple as that. I think social media, again, I'm not 
Exactly. I mean, I'm a, I'm a total hypocrite about all these things. I'm just, I'm trying my best. You know, social media, I think just being aware of what makes me feel good and what makes me feel bad. My therapist right now has me keeping a trigger diary. And at first, you know, I think I, mean, I haven't been very on top of it, but I think at first I was like, oh, I can't think of anything that's triggered me. And then I would really think about it and be like, oh, actually, I can think of all these things that kind of put me in a bad mood or made me feel bad about myself. And just being aware of that and being more analytical about why I felt that way, whether that's rational, whether, you know, I should be avoiding certain things or rethinking the way I think of things. So nothing in particular. Okay, maybe one thing is not really something to avoid. I mean, sort of is, is, is having boundaries. You know, it's a very popular word to use right now, but I think just as a freelancer and as a photojournalist, I think it's really easy to not have boundaries, right? Like you always think you could be doing more. You always think you could be giving more or sacrificing more or whatever, but actually you really need to be able to draw those boundaries and enforce those boundaries and even boundaries with yourself, right? Like I will go to bed at a certain time or I will not entertain certain conversations or even on social media. I think oftentimes, you know, I used to have a really big problem saying no to things or not replying to everyone, but that is just physically impossible. And even just having boundaries about how much I engage with people, I think is really helpful. So maybe the thing to avoid is not having boundaries and working on your on your boundaries. That's great advice. And the trigger diary sounds interesting. For some people, they'd probably be like, everything triggers me. Especially yeah. They're burnt out. Mm-hmm. But it's very smart because you can then avoid things that are personally triggering to you as opposed to things that other people say you should avoid. Because as you said, it's different for everyone. We can't say this doesn't work for you or this should work for you. So I think it's very helpful to really understand yourself. And then obviously self-awareness is an important part of that. I think ultimately the foundation of a photographer's life or anyone's life is just self-awareness and having empathy for yourself first and foremost. And then from there you can build everything else and everything will work a little bit in a, right. a little yeah. bit more smoothly. <laughs> yeah. I mean, one of the things that has really struck me, I'm a big fan of Brene Brown. I don't know if you've read her, but you know, she had a viral TED talk about the power of vulnerability and, and she's written a lot about vulnerability and shame. And, you know, I think as journalists, ultimately, I would think and hope that the the aim is to help people, right, and to help society. And one thing she said that really struck home was you, if you can't receive help, then how can you really give help? You know, I think a lot of us have shame about asking for help and receiving help. And we're, you know, I think especially if you're a freelance photojournalist, you're probably a little over-independent. And her point, and I'm probably not explaining it very well, but, you know, if, her point is if we feel shame about receiving help, then that means anytime we give help, then we're kind of looking down on them, right? And so I think so much healing has to be done for all of us to get to a point where we can receive and ask for help in a way without shaming ourselves. And if the purpose of our industry or career is to help people, then that's something that's really important. And 
So yeah, that that is something I think about a lot is getting to a point where trying to heal myself to a point where I can relate to other people and give to other people and help other people in a way that's not laced with shame that I may not be aware of. That's incredibly helpful and such an interesting and unique perspective on something that I've never heard of before. If you look down on people who ask for help, it means that you're not helping yourself or, or willing to accept help from other people. Yeah. It, it should be a cycle. You should be sort of a, you should be as willing to accept help as you are to give help. Exactly. That, create that beautiful balance. And again, it's about being humble, I guess. Mm-hmm. It's very humbling to ask for help. To say, Absolutely. as an overachiever, to say, I am not that good at this, or I'm not yeah. doing my best right now. Can you please help me with this? Oh, so yeah. <laughs> yeah, or, you know, this is, I can't do this alone. Yeah. And none of us can do this alone, right? That's the whole point of being a human. We're all a social species who exists within a society and a culture, and we, we do need each other. We're all in this together. Very true, yes. But I'm not sure if you can relate to this. Maybe some of the listeners can. As an overachiever, I feel like I can I can do everything myself. Yes, I can. <laughs> I want to. <laughs> yeah. No, I totally get it. Totally get it. But yeah, a lot, lot of unlearning. Yeah, I think that's the power of community as well. Once you join a community that, as you said, National Geographic and other communities, once you have that connection with people, maybe you receive help from them indirectly, maybe by receiving advice or something like that that can already start helping you get a better understanding of how to give help and how to receive help. So I think small steps are important. Just asking for a little bit of help at first that doesn't feel too overwhelming and then going from there whenever you need guidance. Yeah, Yeah, and surrounding yourself with people who make you feel safe and seen, I think it's really, really important. Your portfolio is overwhelmingly oppressive, as I've said a few times. Of all the things you've achieved so far, which achievement are you most proud of and why? Good question. I mean, there's, you know, there's a lot of stories that come to mind that I'm really proud of. You know, one is documentary we produced for Vice News about a migrant worker couple going home for Chinese New Year from Shenzhen to their village in rural Sichuan. I think for me, that one, I'm so grateful to the family for being so open to us and letting us into their lives. And and I also know that it was a story that we were able to tell because the majority of the crew were, everyone spoke Chinese. Most of us were Chinese as well. And being able to gain such intimate access and then tell in a way that I think did their story justice. Um, I'm I'm really proud of that. Um, honestly, playing in the World Cup, I'm really proud of because I think, you know, that's just something I worked so hard for. And it was just like a very concrete, like discrete goal that I was aiming for and like just worked so hard for and, and really taught me the power of discipline and the power of just showing up. Like I definitely was definitely not the most talented player or skilled player but because I was willing to put in that work that already put me ahead of so many people and and being able to represent Hong Kong on that stage and you know we made history as the first Hong Kong team to ever show up and it's something I really care about rugby so that I'm really proud of I think yeah the, the work I've been doing with colleagues in Ukraine we made a podcast we made a short documentary right now we're the same team we're working on a on our future documentary I think proud of that too. So I guess, you know, these projects that 
just involved a lot of time and hard work and, and gaining the trust of of people and putting in the time really, I think, is and that commitment is those are the things that I'm proud of. I think as a journalist, one of the greatest gifts you can receive is gaining trust from the subject that you are documenting and really having that connection with them. And then everything that happens afterwards is important as well. Enough people knowing about the story, of course, as a journalist, I'm sure that really means a lot to you. But that initial trust, I think, can make a big difference to you and to the subjects that you're photographing or, or filming. For sure. And and going back to what we were saying about, you know, what are the skills that a photojournalist needs? And I think that's part of journalism, right? Like gaining that trust. I think a lot of the stories I've done, you know, I do not think of myself as the best photographer by any means, but I think the strength of a lot of my work just comes from the fact that I was able to gain that access, whether it's a story about the drag queens in Kiev or, you know, the story I'd done previously for, for Huffington Post as well was about strippers in Florida during COVID. And like, for me, I'm, I'm really proud that I was able to tell those stories and, you know, maybe another photographer would have taken better photos in that situation. But I also think that no other photographer or very few other photographers would have been able to be in that situation in the first place and gain their trust. So I think that's a part of storytelling that in a photography and a photojournalism that people often forget about. Just, you know, the work that you put in, in terms of the time, the commitment, but also, you know, the relational, emotional, empathetic work that you put in, in order to be able to be in that room and take photos without being intrusive in the first place. I like what you said about connecting with subjects and having that as your one of your main strengths. Because if you were in that situation and you started saying to yourself, oh, somebody else could have done a better job at photographing these people than me, then it would have been discouraging and also maybe affected the quality of your work. But you choose to focus on your unique strengths and what you can bring to the table as a journalist. I think that's the best way to approach it because yes, at the end of the day, there are better photographers, better writers, as you said earlier. And that's just the truth we have to embrace, especially as overachievers, as I keep saying, because <laughs> yeah. wanting to be the best is just natural, very egotistical thing, I guess, but it's just part of being human, I guess. Yeah. Yeah. And that's something I sort of tell myself and whenever I catch myself being overly competitive or com comparing is, is a big vice of mine. And I think it's, just trying to figure out what makes you unique and therefore what's the unique contribution you can make. And it's about giving to the world what only you can give. And we all have something like that, right? We're all different. We all have a unique perspective and, and trying to imitate other people and telling the same stories like isn't really making a novel contribution is probably not the best contribution you can make. So remembering what you're good at and and trying to make work that honors that, I think is something I am trying to do. Exactly. Your background, the way you were brought up, your friends, what you read, what, what you consume on a daily basis, your interests, all of that, they make you a unique individual. And nobody else has exactly the same life as you do. This is kind of cliche to say, but even if people grow up in the same family, they are uniquely individual. And even if they're twins, they look alike. They're still different. Their personalities can be completely different. So it's amazing how that works. And if we focus on strengthening that and on 
highlighting that part of ourselves, then life can become a lot less stressful and depressing, I think. And a lot more interesting for everyone, right? Exactly, exactly. I have one more question for you, and that is, what is the one thing you'd like to achieve in this great big photography world? Ooh. I mean, it's hard because I think there's just like, I can think of things that I want to achieve that are sort of just like external validation or accomplishments, maybe in terms of awards. I mean, I I don't even really, I don't submit to awards just because I kind of feel like it's a waste of time and not very good for my mental health, although that's probably the wrong way to see it. (laughs) But, you know, I I think I just want to make work that I'm proud of and that reach audiences so you know I still I'm a Nat Geo explorer and I've I've shot for natgeo.com but I've never had a story in the magazine that's sort of like a big pie in the sky goal of mine but yeah I think ultimately I just want to make work that I'm proud of work that you know sort of like I mentioned before that requires commitment and that are based on trust and relationships that I've built that say something different and new and then make the world make people see the world differently. That's sort of just what I'm trying to achieve. But yeah, in the in the short term, you know, in terms of more concrete goals, yeah, a big Nat Geo story, I think like all photographers want. But also, you know, I'm thinking about, I do want to make a photo book in the next few years too. I would like to compile my Hong Kong work in a certain, in a book, which took me a long time to get around. But eventually it was really the idea of, realizing that it's not about me it's not about my ego because I think for a long time I was resisting the idea because I was like who am I to make a photo book of my own work but then remembering that it's also a historical record that deserves to be out there for for everyone it's not just about tooting my own horn so yeah I think those are the sort of the the things I would like to do in the next five to ten years very exciting and you're already doing so much now you've achieved so many things and as you said the most important thing for you is connecting with subjects gaining their trust and i think that's the ultimate gift as i mentioned earlier for you as a journalist and thank you so much for taking the time to speak with me today i learned so much and i wish you the very very best with your journey thank you thanks for having me it's been a lot of fun i hope that you were very impressed with laurel's amazing story and her approach to photography I think she's such a talented journalist and she has so many different interests that are very inspiring. I think it's very important to talk about mental health and social media, so it was great that I was able to do so with Laurel and that she was so open to it. So thank you to her for being open to being vulnerable in a podcast format. If you have any questions for Laurel or if you just want to share your thoughts on these episodes with us, we would love to hear from you. Make sure to join our online photography community. There's a link to it in the description. Thank you so much for listening, and I'll see you next week. Our photography community wouldn't be what it is without its amazing members. We're working on many exciting projects and have lots of great perks waiting to be discovered by you. For a small monthly fee, you'll receive all kinds of perks. If you join as an extraordinary member, you'll get an ad-free experience, access to every subforum, access to our 52-week project, the ability to connect with all of our members, and more. As a Limitless member, you'll get all of the perks that I just mentioned and access to all of our premium courses and Lightroom presets. This is the perfect opportunity for anybody who wants to elevate their skills without paying thousands of dollars for courses. 
We're sure that you'll love being a part of our community if you're a fan of this podcast. In addition to meeting new people, you'll learn something new about photography every day, which will help you improve quickly. It's also much more fun to take photographs when you have a group of amazing photographers supporting you. Go to photographycourse.net to find out more and to get 50% off your first year as a member. We can't wait to see you in our community. And again, just as a reminder, go to photographycourse.net slash join to claim your discount with the code GREATBIGPHOTOGRAPHYWORLD. We can't wait to see you there. There's a simple reason why photographycourse.net is the highest rated photography community in the world. It's because the people who use it made it that way. Why not join us right now? Improve your skills, get exposure, and discover an exciting new world of photography. While you're at it, claim your special discount code by going to photographycourse.net and entering the coupon code PODCAST to get 50% off your first year as a premium member.